from KIOS in Omaha and Exorbitant Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, we have our final look into the congressional candidates who want to represent you in the federal government leading up to Nebraska's primary on May 12th. This week, I have a conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Angie Phillips, who is running against Nebraska's sitting senator, Ben Sass. It's the way it's set up right now is definitely not set up for people like me to be able to run for office. Phillips speaks about how the 2016 election inspired her to get involved in politics by running for Congress in order to push the country in a new direction. In today's show, she discusses the hurdles and lessons of becoming a political candidate in a national race. After a break, stick around for my conversation with Angie Phillips right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. Those of you who are already listening on Stitcher get why, and for those of you who don't, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Probably another 260,000 every day that we are in isolation. I added that part. That's not in their copy that they gave me. Uh, Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium. That has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening, all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like comedy? You can listen to exclusive archives from Comedy Bang Bang, WTF with Mark Marin, How Did This Get Made, or bonus episodes from Office Ladies, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use the promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Angie Phillips who is currently a Democratic challenger to Nebraska's sitting senator, Ben Sass. This is the final installment in our series leading up to Nebraska's primary on May 12th, which has included conversations with Congressman Don Bacon, Ann Ashford, Kara Eastman, and Chris Janicek. You can find the previous conversations wherever you get podcasts. Senator Sass has been invited to participate on the show, and I would love to have a conversation with him, but so far it has not manifested. Later in the show, Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt will read an article she wrote for the Omaha World Herald answering frequently asked questions about mail-in voting in this unusual primary season. Before we get to the interview, I first want to address an email from a listener named Gail. Gail pointed out something that I said in a previous interview that was incorrect, and I think it's important to correct the record here. Here's what she wrote. On Riverside Chats, the host, Tom Noblock, made an untrue statement about drinking water regulation. He stated that there are not federal regulations on drinking water, and that is not at all true. My husband John worked for the NDEQ here in Lincoln for over 41 years and said that there have been many regulations at the federal EPA under the Safe Drinking Water Act for many, many years. The states are to be the enforcers of the SDWA, but the federal government may take over the enforcement if necessary. Nebraska has great drinking water, unlike some states who do not enforce the regulations as effectively, and we do not want the listening public to feel like the NDEE, formerly the NDEQ, does not promote safe drinking water here in our state. Thank you, Gail, for calling me out on something that I certainly am not an expert on. It's so easy to act like you know everything, and the nature of this show is conversational. The topics are not all pre-planned. 
So sometimes something like this slips through in a way that I should not have presented as a piece of journalism by me, and I shouldn't have said it into a mic in general without better educating myself on the topic. So thank you, Gail, for educating me on this subject more. I will continue to look into it. I apologize to you listeners, and thank you again, Gail. And now, here is my conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Angie Phillips. Please enjoy. Yeah, so um, I first heard about you. I think I saw a Facebook ad, and you've kind of been around. And I don't have uh, cable, so I'm not watching a whole lot of cable to see campaign ads. But it seems like um, you are relatively new to the local political scene, right? Uh, yeah, I got involved in politics after the 2016 elections. And th- that's the story for a lot of people I've yes. talked to. That's <laughs> fairly common, it seems like. So yeah. let's before we get into that, then, um, you're from Nebraska, but not Omaha originally, right? Right. I'm originally from the Grant and Ogallala area. So that's um, out by Lake McConaughey is like the most familiar landmarker. What was it like there. growing up there? Um, you know, it was good it was a small town we had lots of freedom to run around you know felt pretty safe and secure for most of the part um there were you know good and bad so I I grew up there in the 90s and at the time my brother came out gay so um that was maybe kind of more of a negative experience living out there (laughs) it wasn't um you know accepted or tolerated well but aside from that, I mean, most people there are good people, and it was a fun childhood. So was your family, uh, did they have difficulty with that when you came out, or was it just the culture around you, or what was that um, story? My, my mom never blinked an eye. You mm-hmm. know, he's her son, and she loves him, and that was it. I think my dad had some kind of internal adjustments that he needed to make, but overall, he was, you know, always supportive of my brother. So it was much more just kind of a, um, just kind of a cultural thing out there. Was it a conservative family you grew up in? Um, yeah, yeah. So my mom was Mormon, very conservative, religious, um, growing up, and then my dad also, and he's still conservative. My mom um, is moved over to the liberal side, but my dad is still. Um, pretty conservative. And so were you conservative then as a child? Um, you know, I always thought I wasn't because I felt like more liberal than the people I was around. Mm-hmm. But now when I look back to where I was at, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old to where I am right now, I think I would, I would have called myself a Republican. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, well, uh, I feel like there's people either end up in the camp of, they want to be like, like if everyone around them is one party or the other, it's like, well, I'd like to fit in. And then some people are like, well, I don't want to be what anyone here is. You know, like even yeah. the, I've even had it where it's like, sometimes it's like, well, I don't even like that. I agree with my parents on this issue. Cause I want to think <laughs> I came up with it on my own. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so, okay. When you were a kid, what did you, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you know you'd end up where you are now? Oh no, I never thought I'd end up running for office. That's for sure. Even, you know, five years ago, I would have laughed at you for thinking it, you know, but, um, I wasn't really sure. I, um, my family had a lot of kind of year after year traumas from during my teenage years. So I spent a lot of my teenage years just trying to make it day by day and figure out how to kind of move forward. And I didn't have a lot of thought put into what I wanted to do you know, future when Mm -hmm. I grew up. So, um, it was really when I moved to Eastern Nebraska and kind of settled into my adulthood and was able to kind of, um, 
heal from a lot of that trauma that I was able to figure out kind of what I wanted to do. And by that point, I had already been in the field of like, I was a nurse's assistant and then I worked for a group home for people living with disabilities. So I knew that advocacy for other people was something I cared strongly for. Um, and since I had already been doing the work, then when I did decide to go to college, I went for behavioral science. So you, what made you gravitate toward that kind of work? I think it's just because that's what my mom and my grandma did. I come from kind of a line of caregivers. Um, in When I was living in Grant, obviously the jobs were pretty limited. Um, when I was 16, the nursing home there would let high schoolers take the CNA classes. And then you could do a work study. So you could like work full time basically at the nursing home. So that's initially... Um, what kind of got me into it to start. And so, I mean, even as a high schooler, did you find that you you got something fulfilling out of that kind of work or just being around? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think even, as I mentioned, so my brother came out as gay and I spent a lot of time defending him. And I think that that upbringing really kind of molded me into this person that's ready to fight for the people that are being marginalized. Um, so... Yeah, I think it was just kind of ingrained into me from birth between my grandma and my mom being caregivers and then just having to advocate for my brother. And and so, I mean, were you at that point seeing that as feeding a political sort of worldview or, you know, did you have an ideology at that point or was it still forming? Um, I very much at that point associated that with Republicans. Um, it, you know, at the time there was a lot of talk about marriage equality and what was it the civil unions and stuff like that um so it was always kind of defined politically from for me mm -hmm. with that um which is I think why even though I I did have some more conservative ideas and still do sometimes you know um I identify more with Democrats because a lot of that bigotry was associated with the Republican Party right and a lot of that is usually framed in a religious sense right mm -hmm. and so I mean was that something where for I don't know what your own religious views are but was that difficult for you then to like when you're growing up was it I mean were you Mormon when you're growing up yeah, so my mom raised us in the Mormon church, mm -hmm. um, the reorganized church okay. of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, but she was always open to letting us kind of explore our own faith. Um, but we did, you know, go to church every Sunday and Wednesday, and Mormons go to church for like long hours, yeah. you know. And, um, and it was actually kind of during that time when um, our church that we went to started circulating a petition against gay marriage or civil unions. And, um, that was actually the last day we attended church. My mom took us out of church and she never returned to that church because she felt like her God would not make her choose between loving her son or condemning him to hell. Um, so that definitely was an eye opening experience for me. And I really have spent kind of my whole life struggling with religion. What did I believe? You know, what had I been told to believe? What did I actually believe? Where did it fit in? And then um, it was actually in my early 30s that I turned away from religion, and I'm now a practicing atheist and humanist. And so, I mean, even that makes you sort of different from a lot of people in Congress, certainly. Yes. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of that. Even like, uh, you know, in, in our state legislature, it's a big deal when somebody's an atheist, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, when you get to that point, it's sort of like throughout your 20s then, you were was that a period of discovery, figuring out who am I? You know, I mean, it sounds like politically you'd kind of decided, okay, well, this is not working for me. You know, so mm. you move from the conservative sort of upbringing over to the Democratic side. 
uh, religious, you said it was sort of a struggle. Was that something where you were trying to reconcile a lot of that? It was. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in my, in my early 20s. When I was 21, I was pregnant with my first daughter. I was four months pregnant when her dad passed away in a car accident. So, of course, you know, whenever things like that happen, that also kind of challenges your faith and your religion and what do I believe. Um, but at that moment, I decided that I was going to continue with what I had been brought up on, even though I disagreed with a lot of the things such as, you know, the bigotry towards LGBT people and some of the other things I found in the church. Um, a lot of sexism and misogyny, yeah. especially um, in the church that I was raised in. Um, and so... I kind of just pushed it aside though, because I really just had to focus on having my child and then being a single mom. And then I was trying to put myself through school. Um, and it was probably actually years later when I met my husband, I'm now remarried. Um, and he was an atheist and it kind of allowed me to kind of move away from this idea of if you don't have belief in religion, you must be an awful person mm -hmm. because my husband didn't believe and he's a great guy, you know? Yeah. There's, there's like this idea that if you don't subscribe to a specific religion, then automatically you have no sense of morality. Right. It's like you have to have that. Right. Right. So for you, it took meeting people to sort of dispel that idea. Yeah. Well, and yeah, just to kind of be told like, Hey, it's okay. If you don't believe this, you know, from the time I was born, I was told I need to believe this or I would, you know, go to hell and I would burn eternally. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, that you have to work out. <laughs> like, I want to make sure, you know, that that doesn't happen. And so I definitely think that, um, meeting my husband and other atheist friends helped me just kind of let go of the things that had been put in my head from the time I was little. So, um, yeah. And then finding humanism really helped a lot too, because, I tell people like atheist is kind of just, you don't believe, you know, in, in a deity. Um, but for me, humanism kind of matched what I felt like was my internal morals or like what I knew within my soul was right, you know, and I never felt that with religion. So what does, what does humanism mean to you? So humanism for me basically just means that we all hold a personal responsibility for one another, um, that we find value in life and in one another, and that we're either going to succeed together or fail together. And I, I know when I was in high school, I think I was reading Kurt Vonnegut talk about humanism, and that's probably when that first made an impression on me. And it does seem like a fairly easy, inoffensive pitch, but a lot of people who, you know, it does seem to, I don't know, people who don't already believe that or don't have an openness to it, it seems threatening just to not be you know, part of a functional religious community already. Right. So did you get any pushback for embracing humanism? Um, I, not so much for embracing humanism, but definitely for denying religion. Right. Yeah. I guess that's really uh, what yeah. I'm asking. Yeah. So, um, you know, my dad is Catholic conservative and we definitely have conversations where he tries to, you know, show me the way and right. bring me back to God and, you know, things like that. But, um, overall, aside from just a few people, it, it really was a pretty smooth transition. I just stopped believing and everybody that was around me knew that I was still a good person and I was still Angie doing the same things, you know? So, um, overall it's been, it's been good. There's been instances, um, as a parent raising atheist children, um, that sometimes I have to have some tough conversations because of things that have been said to my kids at school or something, you know? Sure. But, um, overall I feel like it's definitely more accepting. It, it's definitely more acceptable now than it was, when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's moving that direction in some yeah. ways, right? Yeah. Although sometimes it's hard to tell what direction the country is moving right. you know, one way or the other. But... <laughs> Not the truth. <laughs> so when did you make your way to Omaha then? 
Um, so when I was like 20, I moved to Eastern Nebraska. I actually started out in Lincoln okay. for a little while. Omaha seemed big and scary to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I, so I was working in Omaha, but commuting from Lincoln cause I had had some friends that owned a gas station here. Okay. So when I moved up, I just, it was an automatic job, you know? So, um, I came up here and started doing that. And then, um, it was when I met my oldest daughter's dad that I started spending a lot more time in Omaha and just absolutely fell in love with the city. So what was it about Omaha that made you fall in love with it? Um, you know, initially when I first moved here, I think it was the fact that I could drive around and nobody knew me and nobody cared (laughs) (laughs) because coming from a small town, it just felt like people were kind of constantly in your business. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I appreciated that. And then just the opportunity to, meet different groups of people and to have more diversity in my life and, um, more culture. So, yeah. And so you were living in Omaha then, then you didn't have political ambitions at that point though. I mean, you're just here, you're living your life right until 2016 or 20, probably 2015, then 2016. Right. right. So in, in 2015 is when I had my youngest daughter and, um, I quit working so that I could stay home. I'm, I, I think it should be a woman's choice if she wants to work or stay at home with her kids. And I respect women that choose to stay at home. However, for me, it wasn't a choice so much as, a, you know, an economic decision. Like we just didn't have access to affordable daycare. So um, I started staying home with the kids and I kind of, you know, that was during when the elections were happening and the primaries and everything. And so I wanted to utilize my skills, you know, staying at home. And uh, so I started kind of canvassing here and there for I did both Bernie and Hillary I mean I didn't I didn't even understand the argument at the time you know I was like whatever yeah and then after um the election when Trump actually got elected I just it was I can't even find the words I feel like there was a chemical change that went over my body because I just realized that my country was not what I thought my country was and I have three kids that I'm raising in it and I really need it to be the country I thought it was when I was growing up, you know? Um, so yeah, I just started throwing myself into any kind of organizing that I could. There were lots of grassroots groups popping up at the time. Um, and I wanted to try my, my goal at the time was to try to solidify those groups and unite them so that we were all kind of fighting together. But I mean, it sounds like there are people who grow up, especially if they grow up with some kind of wealth in their family, where it's like it's a natural transition to go from if you already kind of have some power in society, like, oh, you should run for office sometime. It sounds like in your life, it probably wasn't something that seemed like an obvious option. No, no. I, I voted like in only the presidential elections up till 2016. Um, I didn't pay attention to midterms or really even down ballot races. I was definitely not doing my civic responsibility. <laughs> um you know, but a lot of that too was for a lot for a large portion of my adulthood. I was a single mom trying to make it through school, trying to work, and just didn't even really have time to focus my energy on like what was happening politically, because um, it was just this daily try to get by type of thing. So I think that once you know I was married and staying at home, and I had somebody else helping me parent and somebody else helping me pay the bills. I had a little bit more time to pay attention and really see what was happening. I also had friends that were, you know, impacted by the Trump elections. I had a friend that is a a black woman and I babysit her kids sometimes and she had dropped her son off shortly after the Trump elections and then was on her way to work and she had gotten run off the road and some guys had been calling her the N-word and other racial slurs and ran her off the road. Um, and so when she, so she immediately, you know, called the cops, called into work, came back to pick up her kids. She's obviously shaken and um, it just really hit me that 
in my life, even though I've had hard times and I've never been, you know, wealthy, I've definitely been sitting on some privilege and contributed to, you know, some pretty horrible things that that led up to Trump being able to be elected in the United States. And I just felt like it was a responsibility to pay attention and do my part. Well, in a lot of ways, it seems like that is the whole promise of America is just that anybody really should be able to be able to jump into the political race, mm-hmm. to be able to be a representative to like if like what you're saying, where it's the question of is the country actually what it what it promised to be to you or like is it is your idea of the country possible still maybe the way to make it possible is just to try to mold it right i mean mm-hmm. the whole idea is you could become a representative from you know any walk of life in theory right but to then to make that decision probably felt insurmountable in some ways right it's like oh, this oh. how do i even do this though oh yeah so you know i started out with the women's marches and helping organize them and i had lots of um what i view as very powerful, strong women, people, but mostly women around me, you know, and I definitely feed off of their strength and their energy. Um, I had gone in October of 2018 during the Kavanaugh hearings to um, Washington, D.C. to try and speak with Senator Sass with a group of other, um, we had over two dozen sexual assault survivors, and he pretty much blew us off, um, didn't take us seriously, and then ended up moving forward with uh, the the Kavanaugh nomination. And it was that flight home that I was like so mad and so frustrated because when you're in a position of power like that and you don't talk to talk to your constituents, you're preventing them from participating in our democracy. And so I felt silenced and I felt frustrated, um, not just for that moment, but for all of the moments and all of the stuff I'd been advocating for where I'd been silenced and shut down. So um, a lot of just out of, you know, frustration, I was like, I'm going to run against him because that that will make him hear me. It will make him hear the stories that I'm advocating for, you know, the people that I advocate for. And um, he's he's just going to have to do it. So but then when it came down to actually doing an announcement, um, if you go back and you watch my quote unquote, you know, light, soft announcement or whatever on social media, I very much appear afraid. And if we're to be honest, I spent a good two or three hours like in the office, like crying and trying to figure out what I was going to say. Cause I just keep thinking I'm not, I'm not really anybody, you know, I'm just Angie from Grant. Like I don't have a lot of money. I definitely am not in a position of power. Um, and I'm going up against not just a United States Senator, but a millionaire, right. you know, and I had at that point assisted with some campaigns and I know the type of money that they spend to smear you, you know, and, and I never planned on being a politician. So then you're also thinking about every possible mistake you <laughs> yeah. could have made in the like, last, why didn't you know, I live my life 40, right. to make sure there's nothing bad ever. <laughs> right. So it was very terrifying, but like I said, um, I just, it, it feels like a calling and I felt, I feel like the people are behind me and um, somebody's got to do it. And I think I stand a good chance. So. It seems like uh, this particular race, a lot of people are feeling that way. You know, there are a lot of people who are running against Sass. Uh, and Sass, I mean, he ran on sort of like the idea of being a conservative, traditional conservative intellectual. And would you say that, I mean, I guess, how would you characterize him in the way that his, uh, his tenure has gone so far? You know, I think he's like a showboater. He, I feel like he's just in the Senate to stall any type of progress or movement. He doesn't come up with good legislation. He doesn't, you know, come up with even like when they just did the coronavirus stuff, right? So he was one of eight people to vote no against the uh, 
Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And he didn't offer up like any amendments. He didn't say what we should be doing instead. He literally just, you know, stops it. Um, And the only time he really even seems to come out is when he has an opportunity to get some national media attention and kind of showboat something. Um, I can't figure out why he's in the Senate if he doesn't want to do the job. That, that, that does seem to be common in a lot of Republican senators right now. I mean, you saw that for sure during the impeachment hearings where it's just like almost making a mockery of the Senate as its own institution. Uh, why do you think somebody would be in the Senate, even if they don't seem to think that it's important or seem to believe ideologically that the Senate shouldn't be doing anything because if the federal government's acting, you know, that that's a bad move compared to states or whatever, whatever specific motivation there might be? Um, I think either... One, to just stall progress, or two, for money and power, right? Um, Senator Sass has a ton of money. He's made a lot of money off of the books that he sold while in Senate. Um, He has a lot of big money supporters and big money names behind him. Um, That's the only reason I could figure it out. Well, and I I noticed when I was even just looking at your website, so that seems to be an important idea to you is money is important. We need to be aware of where it's coming from, why it's coming from certain places. So like, for example, I mean, it does seem like there's a push right now among people who are running sort of against the current establishment where it's like, maybe we shouldn't have unlimited money going into PACs or coming Mm -hmm. from, you know, whatever, whether it's a corporation, whatever it might be, because that almost inevitably does influence the way that you would vote. Right. Right. So for you, I mean, I saw you made a pledge that you would not take corporate PAC money. Right. No so, corporate pack money. What was I the taken any pack money. well? What was the decision behind it? Because I mean, that is kind of a big declaration, and it does set you aside from a lot of other candidates. Yeah. Well, for me, I personally know that I can't be bought, right? But every politician just about promises that, right? <laughs> so I think that a way to kind of um, give constituents and supporters peace of mind is to just not take the money. Um, I also knew when we were going into this that I wasn't going to be able to out fundraise Senator Sass. He's a millionaire. I'm, you know, it's he started out with like two or three million before he even announced. I think the last time I heard he's up to like six. He's expected to get to eight. I mean, so I knew from the start that we were going to have to outwork him and out budget him. Um, I also am a strong believer that people vote, not money. <laughs> so um, I think that it really is about creating a movement of the people and empowering them to understand that they have a voice and all they got to do is get out and vote the right people in um, so that they can take back their power in our government. And um, yeah, I advocate for complete finance reform when it comes to campaigns. It's the way it's set up right now is definitely not set up for people like me to be able to run for office. Um, when you look at somebody that is living paycheck to paycheck and you tell them you're going to have to come up with a million dollars before anybody even takes you seriously, that can be enough right there for people to feel like, oh, well, I guess I can't run. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it discourages so many people from running. That's yeah. what I kind of was talking about before. Where it's like when you start from a place of money, then it's easy to think, oh, I should just run for office sometime. It's almost like it doesn't seem like a big decision for certain people. It's right. Like, yeah, have you ever thought about writing for office? You seem powerful, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. well, wait, wait a second. That doesn't seem like that. Maybe is not quite what they planned uh, with the whole idea. You know, starting hundreds of years ago. Uh, what changes could be made though in order to widen the field? Well, I know that what every progressive wants to hear me say is that we need to get rid of Citizens United, and I would support that, except for with our Supreme Court the way it is, um, and as long as Citizens United has been into play. I just don't foresee that as something that's going to happen anywhere in the near future. So I think that we need to make other legislation around campaign finance and we need to um, limit 
like you said, the money that can go into PACs and stuff, but we also need to um, look into public fi- public campaign financing, I think is one route that we could take that would help a lot, especially for people like me that don't have the money to get started. Now, I talked uh, to Don Bacon about that specifically, and he was talking about how his basic argument is that he doesn't like that idea because your money would potentially be going to candidates you don't like. So, I mean, what, what would be your answer to people who basically are just saying like, well, I don't like public money because I don't want Ben Sass to get my dollars if I'm going to vote for Angie Phillips or whatever it might be. Right. Um, you know, I think that folks like Representative Bacon haven't ever experienced the challenge of what it's like being a working class person trying to run. Um, and so he might not see the importance of it. I think that, I mean, your money should go to who you want and you should definitely, but it has to be a fair has to be a fair playing field. And if we don't, if we don't do something, we're just never going to get diverse candidates in the field when it comes to working class people. Well, it sounds like part of what you're saying though, is it's, it improves it because it, it levels out the disproportionate influence that certain people who like, if I have more money than right. my neighbor, I can maybe have more of an influence as opposed to if it's a level, everybody's getting the same amount of money and it's publicly you know, regulated. Right. And it'll make candidates reach out to those small donors more. Right. And right now, candidates and elected officials spend more time talking to people with money. Right. Well, because there's incentive to it. makes yeah. sense. I mean, from a just a purely tactical perspective, why you would do that. Right. But part of what you're running on is the idea that that should be shifted. We should change that, right? Right. And I mean, that's partially your story. Yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Angie Phillips, who is a U.S. Senate candidate running to represent Nebraska. She's running against current sitting Senator Ben Sass. We'll be back after this quick break right here on Riverside Chats. From Omaha Public Radio, I'm Emily Chen Newton, and you're listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made Over America, the podcast that's part history and culture and part science and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But here's the thing. I am not from the Midwest. So in every episode, I do the research and then I sit down with someone who is from here. And together we explore the stories of famous persons, products, inventions, social movements, and cultural beliefs that got their start right here in the middle of America. It started with a smell. He just smelled different. A sort of nasty yeast smell. Joy told her husband to take a shower, but it didn't help. (laughs) Over the weeks and months that followed, the smell didn't go away. It grew. Until one night, when Joy woke up to her husband attacking her. He just got a hold of me, just grabbed me. (laughs) This season on NPR's Invisibilia... A prayer for our troubled future. At the middle of the road, you're on the wrong side. We bring you seven Hail Marys. Most holy and everlasting Father, we come. Stories of people who come up with improbable workarounds to our very desperate problems. Mr. Chairman, I'm here today to represent the children of the United States. Like, what do you do when you're the most targeted man in the world? We'll break your legs, but on the other hand, we'll give you quite a lot of money. How to finally get the wrong guy out of office. I had to win. Throw a rock, I threw a rock. How to say what you really think without starting a race war. Stop taking positions just because you're white. 
and possibly the biggest problem facing each and every one of us. How do you fall in love with pond scum? From NPR, I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Hannah Rosen. Invisibilia is back. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. Today I'm talking with Angie Phillips, who is currently running to represent Nebraska in the United States Senate. Later in the show, Senator Megan Hunt will explain how mail-in voting works for anybody who still has a ballot to mail back for this coming primary on May 12th in Nebraska. Here's the rest of my conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Angie Phillips. So... You decide to run, uh, you put together a team for it, and that automatically, I mean, I, I'm always sort of like shocked to just people, like what we were talking about, so it's like if you aren't start starting from a place of a lot of money, it's got to just feel like so much work to try to figure this out. It's like, is, is am I going to get traction? How do you do it? How did you get your message out to start to get some, uh, you know, some momentum? You know, I think that the most helpful thing is the fact that I am a community organizer and human rights advocate, and I have spent the last several years working with other people that are incredibly smart and incredibly talented. So when I decided, okay, I'm going to get this together, I already had, you know, a good outreach of people that do political things and community organizing. And um, so it was kind of just a natural thing for us. We were like, okay, this is the next thing we're going to organize. And we did. And I'm super proud of it. I have a team of, um, a core team of 13 all volunteer people with everyone from, really great political experience to this is, you know, their first time really getting involved and they want to help out. We have nonpartisans on our team. We have Republicans on our team. Um, we definitely have every kind of Democrat on our team. So, um, yeah, I've just been really excited about the way it's pulled together and I'm thankful for my work in the community because I think that's what got me here. Do you find yourself trying to reach out to Republicans? I know you said some are on your team. I mean, Part of I mean the stereotype, and it's not necessarily true historically, but just in our increasingly polarized state that we're in right now, it just seems like, to some extent, candidate doesn't matter as much as you'd want them to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, if people are just going to vote Republican no matter what, right. that can feel once again also just like, ah, can I even impact that? So, I mean, how do you reach out to Republicans with your message, and how how has that been received? Um, so I've been going out west since July. I started out in my home area because that seemed to make the most sense, where people would see me as you know, Angie from Grant and not like Angie, the whatever, you know, (laughs) they come up with. Um, and so I, and our message has been received really positively for one. We're not going out there and saying, you know, Democrats versus Republicans, the GOP sucks. That's obviously not a message that's going to go well through most of Nebraska. Um, our message has been, we have a government that is not paying attention to the people. We have a government that is preventing us from participating in our democracy. And even if we disagree on stuff, if we can agree to listen to one another um, and that through doing that, we could rate great policy. It's just really not about Democrats versus Republicans. It's feels that way. I know. But really, for me, it's about working class people getting a deserved spot in our government and um, out west and rural Nebraska has been really receptive to that. We're also working on addressing the needs that they have. They, rural Nebraska has a lot of valid concerns that sometimes get ignored because they get blown off as, you know, just like uptight, racist, whatever, you mm-hmm. know, and they just blow it off. But they have hospitals and nursing homes closing down there. They have real problems with getting health access to health care. Um, you know, they... Their their small towns are dying out because you get these large corporations that come in, they get tax breaks, they promise them all these things, and then the minute they're not making enough profit, 
they bounce, you know, and the towns are just left distraught. We have to address those problems. Um, so we have a rural revitalization plan that we have worked out through speaking with numerous people across Nebraska. And um, once you start talking about this is how we can address your problems, they care a little bit less about the fact that I'm, you know, pro-choice or they care a little bit less about the fact that I'm a Democrat because they see that I'm responsive to their needs. Do you find that the two-party system is helpful for America right now or do you have challenges with it? I do not like the two-party system. And I know that so many of my Democratic friends roll their eyes when I say that, but I don't like it. I feel like it kind of chooses – it makes us choose between this way or that way, you know? And it's like um, there are a lot of people that have – various different beliefs we're not monolithic you know so i think that when you get forced into these two party it just really increases the divide and um like i said if i'm gonna push any kind of two two party system it's gonna be the working class versus the elitist that just are not meeting our demands right now why do you think some of your uh, friends don't like that you say you don't like the two-party system oh i think for one there's a lot of loyalty to party um And I think some of that is valid because, you know, Republicans feel like their party is helping them out the most and Democrats feel like their party is helping them out the most. Um, But I I think that's scary. I I think that we should be – for me, I'm loyal to the people. I'm loyal to the people. You know, I mean, I talked with Ann Ashford kind of about, I keep asking all the politicians kind of the same question. Just It's interesting to hear the the variety of responses. And Ann Ashford seemed to suggest that, in the Democratic Party, there's almost less loyalty, but not in a bad way. She seemed to suggest that it's like you can have a wider variety of views as opposed to her take was the Republican Party is a little bit more rigid in like, you know, what the 75 percent of issues you should like. Here's how you should feel on 75 percent of the issues. Yeah. Do you and find I t- that to be true? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, I think I mean, you can look at like our state senator, Senator McAllister, right? And the minute he spoke out against the GOP, they were like, get out of the party, right? Like no tolerance for a different opinion. Whereas the Democrats, I mean, you can even kind of put us out into our subsectors, right? So you've got like your moderate Democrat, your liberal, your progressive, your democratic socialist, your socialist, your... So, um, and I, I think that it is good that we have more of that freedom in the Democratic Party, but it also undeniably um, makes it a little bit harder for us to come together and win. Do you anticipate that being an issue this year? Um, I think it'll probably be an issue every year. I think a lot of it depends on the candidate. And I think that the candidate's role should be to earn people's vote and do outreach to all types of people. And I think that a lot of the way, I think the reason that I can appeal to Republicans all the way to your further left people is because I'm honest about where I stand. They feel like they They can trust me when I say this is where I'm at. I'm consistent in it. But I'm also willing to listen to your side. And if we need to change something, we can change it. Um, I think right now, and I say this a lot, but I feel like right now a lot of people in Congress are more concerned about being right than getting stuff right. So they might come out with a piece of legislation and then they're like, look, it's perfect. Look what I did. It's great. And then somebody else is like, oh, but here's the hole and I have concerns about this. And rather than saying, oh, you know, that's a valid concern. Let's look at this so we can improve the legislation. They kind of stand their ground on like, no, this is great. And I think that it gets us nowhere. So 
running against Ben Sass, why did you pick this specific race as opposed to a different, uh, you know, local, either local office or a different federal one? Yeah. So, um, you know, the more I told you, I'd come home on the plane and I was angry. And then when I got home, you know, I told my husband, I'm running against him. And he's like, you're tired. We need to take a nap. It's been a long week, you know? And so then I spent a lot of time thinking about it because I didn't want to run against him just because I don't like him. You know, I wanted to actually be able to offer Nebraskans something good in a candidate. And the more I thought about it, you know, I was born and raised in Western rural Nebraska, and that's where Democrats struggle to get votes. Um, Those people raised me. Like, I understand where they're coming from. I have a genuine concern about them. And I feel like I'm the candidate that can really work on healing that kind of rural and urban divide. Um, to my knowledge, which I'm not a huge history buff on it, but to my knowledge, we don't have candidates that run for Senate that are from Western rural Nebraska, but then living their life in the city. So I felt like that was unique. I still have tons of friends and family down there. I'm, I'm constantly out West, you know, visiting them. I mean, before COVID. (laughs) And so, um, I just really felt like I had that unique perspective. I, on the other side of that, I also currently live and reside in North Omaha, so North Omaha obviously is predominantly low income, predominantly people of color. color. Um, and the more I learn about the needs of my North Omaha community, the more I see how similar those needs are to my hometown of Grant and really how similar all of our needs are. Um, our, our barriers to being able to obtain what we need might be different, but the need is the same. So I just feel like I could do a good job at representing all Nebraskans, and I have a genuine and valid concern for all Nebraskans. So I felt like statewide is where I wanted to go. So what were some of the big issues then that you feel like you would want to make a difference in if you were to get elected? Uh, Definitely rural revitalization, like I kind of just talked about. Um, And then climate change is huge, and I think that Nebraska could play a huge role in that through regenerative agriculture. Um, And then humane immigration reform. Um, my advocacy work, I've done a lot of work with undocumented people and migrants. Um, and that system is just corrupt and inhumane. And, um, it was before Trump, his executive orders worsened it, but it's been messed up for a long time. So I would like to see some real change in that. And then also healthcare. So I support, I believe I'm the only Senate candidate right now supporting Medicare for all. Um, I believe that that addresses our needs, both financially and healthcare wise. Um, and then as far as we move forward, we, I just want to make sure that we're putting a social and economic justice perspective on every piece of legislation we have moving forward. So what, what does that mean? What, what does that perspective look like? So right now we have our laws that were written by rich white men for rich white men, right? And so we have a lot of systemic sexism, a lot of systemic racism um, built into our laws. So as we're reviewing those laws and we're creating new laws, we need to look at it from an intersectional viewpoint. So kind of like, how does this law affect all of the numerous types of communities that we have living in our country? Um, And making sure that we're viewing that piece of legislation from that intersectional approach. And was that something that you you were developing sort of your worldview, you said in like, you know, your 20s, 30s, well before you decided to run for office? Was that something that have you developed that more in figuring out ways to implement some of those ideas of that worldview since you committed to running for office? Yes. And actually, since the Women's March in 2016 is what, or 2017, sorry, is what really um, introduced me to intersectional feminism and intersectionality and getting an understanding of it. Um, and I've had 
thankfully a lot of strong um, women of color and leaders that have been willing to use their time and energy to teach me things that maybe they shouldn't have had to, you know? Um, But yeah, it was definitely the women's March that really brought to my attention the importance of intersectionality and intentional inclusion. And so uh, as far as what our Nebraska, you know, as far as what it would look like for legislation that impacts Nebraska, and uh, I'm curious, regenerative ag- agriculture, what does that look like? So regenerative agriculture, it does a ton of stuff. The thing that I'm most impressed by is that they have figured out which kind of like crops and which kind of plants you can plant into the ground that will pull carbon out of the ground effectively. It helps protect our topsoil, helps protect our groundwater, um, and it removes that carbon from the air which obviously is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe not just to stop producing carbon, but also to actively try to remove it from there. Um, and so for me, that does a lot for our farmers, but we can extend it even beyond farming. Like, for example, Nebraska has a ton of open spaces, right? So if you drive up and down I-80, then you have your farm and ranch land, but you also have like large side medians and the large median in the road and we could be filling all of that up with plants that remove carbon from the the air all year round. We definitely should be investing in solar and wind energy. Um, the technology is amazing. Like as I've been running, I look into it more and they even have like cute looking street lights, you know, <laughs> that like, it's like a street lamp and it's got this little wind thing in the middle that could, you know, do our street lights. And it's just, the technology is there. The funding isn't. So we have to stop funding big oil and fossil fuel industries and we have to start putting that funding into green energy do you find that our people in rural communities the stereotype is that they are rejecting green technology or regenerative what i mean basically any of the sort of like left ideas of environmentalism do you find that that's true when you talk to them about these ideas not in the way that um maybe sometimes people get the impression through media and stuff like that Um, so one thing, farmers and ranchers love their land. Mm -hmm. So when you start talking to them about regenerative agriculture and what it does for their crops and what it does for, to protect their water and their soil and stuff. Um, and then you start talking about it is better produce. You'll be making more money. You'll be growing better food, you know, stuff like that. And then you say, and we want to give you incentives to do it because you'll be helping, you know, the world and the country. Um, then they can definitely get excited about that. Um, it's funny to me when people are like, oh, people out West don't believe in climate change because I learned about it in seventh grade in Grant, Nebraska. <laughs> um, so I know that they believe in cl- global warming um, and the science of cli- climate change because I literally learned it from them. And so, I mean, you feel hopeful then that it's not something where it's like people in certain communities can't learn about an issue, change their mind on it. Part of your whole idea seems to be that fluidity of we need to be listening to each other, opening our minds and, and talking. Yes, exactly. And right now, you know, um, especially like one of the reasons I wanted to run is because as I was getting more involved in the political arena and campaigns, I often heard a lot from both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans, that well, we just don't put a lot into West of North Platte. And for me, that was incredibly insulting because I'm like, well, first of all, most of my family is from West of North Platte. So please don't tell me that they're not important, you know. Yeah. But then also, you know, so the more I checked into it, the Republicans just don't spend a lot of time out there because they just take their vote for granted. They just assume they'll get voted for. And then the Democrats have limited resources and time and, you know, people power. So um, out West gets neglected in that aspect, too. I think that 
since we are a two-party system, we as Democrats need to spend more time out West really talking to people and understanding their struggle. And like I said, we also need to make sure, you know, we hear about something that happens out West and we're like, oh, they're all just racist. And then we just completely blow them off. Well, when you have legit needs out there and nobody is responding to those needs, that opens up all this room for this um, lots of disinformation. But if you're only hearing one thing, you know, um, that makes it harder. So I think definitely communication and talking to them and stop demonizing one another. As far as communication goes, it's been, what, three years since Ben Sass has done a town hall in Nebraska? Yeah. What do you make of that? I think he knows he's doing wrong and he's scared to talk to people. I think that if you, even if people are upset with you, but you feel like you're doing what's right, then, then you have nothing to be ashamed of. And if you have nothing to be ashamed of, why not talk to your constituents? Um, Senator Sass just hides. He just hides. I guess a question that I'm trying to figure out just for myself is he has talked a lot about, he's been very critical of federal power doing much in general. He hasn't done town halls. Why do you think he wants to run for reelection? money and power. I mean, I, I just, I, I really don't know. I really do not understand why, why he's in office. He might have bigger goals. You know, maybe this is just a step along the way and he wants to, I know there's a lot of rumors and talk that he might try to run for president. We have people struggling in Nebraska and throughout the United States right now. We couldn't even make it a week through a semi shutdown in Nebraska before people were hurting to pay their bills or couldn't buy food or that tells you there was something wrong with our country even before the coronavirus, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I would just like to say that like right now when we're going through this national pandemic, um, it baffles me that one of the basic things we haven't been able to guarantee everybody in our country is treatment for COVID-19. Um, I, I know that the most common thing people want to talk about is healthcare. And I know that there's a lot of disinformation that scares people about a Medicare for all system, but it really would have prevented a lot of what we're seeing as far as like trouble with testing, because we would have had universal test kits. Um, everybody would be offered insurance. So I, I guess my biggest thing is to just look at your government and see what basic needs they're offering you. And if you feel like that's not fulfilling your needs go find somebody else to support and work your butt off and just get the right people into office well thank you so much for talking to me angie phillips thank i really you. appreciate it angie phillips is currently running to represent nebraska in the united states senate you can hear my conversation with her as well as the other people in our road to the primary series on riverside chats and whatever podcast app you prefer that includes conversations with congressman don bacon with candidates Ann Ashford, Kara Eastman, Chris Janicek, and now Angie Phillips. For the rest of the show, I'm going to hand things over to Senator Megan Hunt, who wrote a primer on how mail-in voting works. This applies for people who have already gotten their ballots and still need to mail them back before Nebraska's primary on May 12th. Here is Senator Hunt. Hey everybody, this is State Senator Megan Hunt from District 8 and I represent the neighborhoods of Dundee and Benson and the areas around Keystone and Memorial Park. And I wanted to tell you all a little bit about vote by mail in Nebraska. I've heard a lot of questions and confusion about voting by mail in Nebraska. So I wanted to offer some clarity to the thousands of Nebraskans who like me 
will be voting by mail for the first time in 2020. Um, and I wanted to respond to some of the most common questions I receive. What if I don't have stamps? So to be clear, these are the only two things that you need to send to your county election official. First of all is your application to vote by mail, and second, your completed ballot. So that's just two things you have to mail in or send in. And note that both the application and the returned ballot require a stamp because postage in Nebraska is not included. However, there are ways to return both your application and your ballot without a stamp. For your application, you can take a picture or scan it and then email it to your county election official. And once you receive your ballot, you can drop your completed ballot in its envelope at a Dropbox location without a stamp. Every county has a ballot drop box and they have at least one on um, the Nebraska Association of County Officials and the Secretary of State has paid for every county to have a drop box. So you can drop your ballot there without a stamp. Also, this isn't something that the USPS or the Election Commission publicizes, but if you put a ballot in the mail without a stamp, they will return the ballot and they will get it to the Election Commission. So, you know, if that's something that you need to do, that's always an option. But the best thing to do is mail it in with a stamp. And if you don't have a stamp, just drop the completed ballot in its envelope at a drop box without a stamp. Next question, who is allowed to vote by mail? Easy, in Nebraska, any voter may request a vote by mail ballot, period. You don't have to give a reason. You don't have to write an explanation about why you need uh, to vote by mail. You can just request one and you will get a ballot. Next question, is vote by mail the same thing as early voting? Yes, vote by mail, vote at home, early voting, and absentee ballot all refer to the same thing in Nebraska. All right, the next question is, will I still be able to vote in person? Right now, the plan is to allow in-person voting in Nebraska, yes. The Secretary of State and his very experienced, very wonderful elections team have thought this through and they've put many precautions in place to protect poll workers and voters who do choose to vote in person. And finally, the last important date is May 12th. That's election day. And you need to make sure that your ballot is received by your county election office by 8 p.m. Central Time and 7 p.m. Mountain Time. So keep those times in mind, keep those dates in mind and get out there and vote by mail from home. This is State Senator Megan Hunt, and I hope you all vote by mail in 2020. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. You can find our backlog of episodes, including our Road to the Primary series, on your favorite podcast app, which includes conversations with Angie Phillips, Chris Janicek, Don Bacon, Ann Ashford, and Kara Eastman. Next week, we'll have a conversation with actor Derek Silkman. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.